Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview senior executives by posing the exact questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders, The Anatomy of a Multibagger is sponsored by Tegas. Tegas is an innovative and disruptive company that is changing the way professional investors work. For more information, please visit their site at tegas.co. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is George Gonzalez, the CEO of the St. Joe Company. St. Joe is a $2.53 billion market cap company whose main asset is a huge land holding in Northwest Florida. A lot of investors may remember that the company has been the subject of a number of short reports over the last decade. But since George became CEO in 2015, St. Joe has consistently grown its revenue and EBITDA and has diversified its revenue base. Also, After a period of time in which the stock was unable to break out, over the last year, it has risen to levels that had not been seen since the mid-2000s. Given the company's recent success, I was excited to talk to George about his vision for the future of the company and what people may not be appreciating about its asset base. Specifically, we discussed what it means to operate as an owner-oriented company, the demographic trends that are fueling growth in Northwest Florida, what the shorts have gotten wrong over the years, how the company approaches the risk of hurricanes in the region, and what George has learned from the company's chairman, Bruce Berkowitz of Fairhome Capital. Full disclosure, Cove Street is not a Joe shareholder. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with the St. Joe Company CEO, George Gonzalez. As you know, we always start this podcast at a pivotal moment in the company's history. Given the success you have had in changing the trajectory of this company, I thought it would be great to start off with when you became CEO. So let's go back to the fall of 2015. You'd been with the company since 2002 and were named the next CEO. What did you see as the opportunity that made you excited to take on the role? Then, first of all, thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, it was a combination of things. First of all, I saw a lot of potential in the company's land holdings in a part of Florida that I knew was poised for growth. That combined with the fact that there was an opportunity to change the business strategy made me very excited uh, about the potential of the company. And as you thought about how you could make the largest impact, was there a change in course or strategy required? Or did you think that it was more about execution and patience than anything else? Execution, patience, and culture are always critical, but we did make some very deliberate changes in business strategy. Uh, The first one we did was a focus on reoccurring income streams creating recurring income streams for the company. Uh, the second one was in diversifying the income streams and the demographics that the company uh, went after. And the third one was collaboration. Uh, we felt in order to accelerate the growth of the region, 
we needed to bring partners in, uh, best of class partners that we joint venture with, um, because we knew we couldn't do everything ourselves and maintain a very efficient overhead uh, cost structure. And before that change in trage- trajectory, was there a sense that you could do this on your own and that, like, let's go it alone and not partner? Or, and there was a big, and this was kind of a revolution, or was this more like an evolution in thinking as you started to figure out what the opportunity was? There's a little bit of, of, of all that. Uh, I think part of it was evolutionary and part of it was just a change in thinking. For example, uh, prior to that time, the company was focused on what I called the 1% of the demographic, the very high end in terms of residential communities and lodging and hospitality. I'm not a math genius, but I know there's another 99%. Uh, so we knew that uh, diversifying uh, the demographics and the income streams that uh, we went after was was really important. Same thing with collaboration. Uh, prior to that, there was uh, not uh, a widely accepted uh, strategy for, for us to partner uh, with other folks. I think there was a perspective that the company can do everything by itself. Um, I felt differently. Our board of directors at the time felt differently. Um, and that's those are all reasons and, and factors that led to us changing the business strategy. Interesting. Interesting. So let's, let's dive into the business a little bit. So this is a a podcast called compounders. And when I think of a compounder, it's a business that has a moat for the majority of the companies that have been on our show, the moat is somewhat metaphorical, but for Joe, your moat is literally the Gulf of Mexico. So just for people who are not familiar with Western Florida geography, can you talk about the company's land holdings and what might make it harder for other developers to come into your market? Absolutely. The company owns uh, roughly 170,000 acres. 86% uh, of that acreage is is concentrated in three counties, Bay County, Walton County, and Gulf County, all counties located in Northwest Florida. Just for uh, geographic context, those counties are roughly located in between Destin, Florida, and Panama City, uh, Florida. So the scale of our ownership uh, is a competitive advantage uh, for us. Uh, The execution operational muscle that we have in this region is also a competitive advantage in our relationships. We value relationships greatly in our communities with elected officials and community leaders. So combine the scale of our land holdings, our operational uh, footprint and our relationships, uh, we think create a competitive advantage uh, for our company. Interesting, got that. And, you know, I think one of the things that we've seen is you know florida being a destination state for certain people you know like moving away from california for example and and for for a number of reasons maybe talk a little bit about demographic shifts and changes that you know you've seen in the past and 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 what you think you know going forward how you're planning for uh kind of an inflow of of people into your markets Absolutely. This area historically has been a second home uh, market uh, for residential Uh, vacation rental homes, second homes. uh, Even before the pandemic, we started seeing a shift in that. Uh, We started seeing a shift where uh, more people were moving here to live full time. Uh, We also started seeing a shift in the catchment area where those people are coming from. Traditionally, our market has been Atlanta, Nashville, and Dallas, and you can draw a line through those metro markets and everything inside of that uh, is traditionally our our market for hospitality and residential. Uh, A couple of years ago, we started seeing a shift where people were coming from outside of of that arc 
those metro markets. So the pandemic hit, uh, challenging times for all of us personally and professionally, obviously. But those trends that we started seeing before the pandemic just uh, went on supersonic speed. Uh, we started seeing even more people moving here from larger metro markets, uh, from a wider diversity of geography, and more people to live here full time. Got that. That makes sense. And so how do you as a company, and we ask a lot of companies, this question is, we've seen this COVID impacted influx in terms of your markets and other companies have seen either, you know, kind of short term negative impacts, but also positive things that happen as a result of COVID. How do you, how do you think about the longevity of those things? Do you feel like just certain things were accelerated as a result of COVID uh, and that's why, and and you think they're going to continue or do you feel like you got a one-time bump and maybe things will level off a little bit in terms of the influx? If COVID taught us anything is it's hard to predict the future. It's hard to look around the corner and always expect the unexpected and always plan for the unexpected. Uh, We certainly have seen an acceleration uh, of the trends that we started seeing before COVID in terms of uh, people moving here from a lot more different places and uh, living here full time. Uh, Is that going to continue? Is that trend going to continue? We believe so. Uh, We obviously can't can't, uh, predict that for sure, but but we think so because it you get to a critical mass, you get to a tipping point where there's enough awareness created about a region, about an area, and uh, that's how that's how that trend continues. So we uh, it hasn't slowed down since uh, the pandemic started. In fact, uh, this year we've seen even an, a, an acceleration of those trends. Uh, so do we prepare for uh, uh, changes to that or, or surprises? Yes, we always prepare for that. But right now, we believe the trend is going to continue. Great. Let's um, uh, staying on that for a second. So housing prices have been tremendously strong across the country, and there's just a lot of demand with limited supply. So I think eventually that will normalize. So I'm interested in in how cyclical this region has been in in the past, right? Just because you know because Bakersfield, California had a terrible 2008 and nine doesn't mean that other places did as well. So how do you how do you think as an organization about preparing for cyclicality? And then what, what about, you know, how cyclical has the housing market been in your markets traditionally? Historically and traditionally, this real estate market has been very cyclical. Uh, it's been primarily a second home vacation rental uh, market, uh, investor driven. So it's been very cyclical. Uh, we've had uh, very high peaks and very low valleys. As more people have started to move here full time, uh, that cyclical nature is beginning to level off. Uh, we're, we're seeing already uh, trends that lead us to believe that that cycle that we've had in the past is not going to be as sharp. Uh, the other aspect uh, of our business strategy uh, of focusing on recurring income streams and not just relying on real estate transactions and in, in, in sale of home sites was another reason, uh, a very purposeful reason that we uh, we change strategy so we can create some buoyancy for the company and not just be relying on real estate transactions because every every market has a cycle to it and if there's macroeconomic conditions that uh, for whatever reason uh, rising interest rates for example mortgage interest rates uh, create uh, a, a slowdown in in uh, uh, the purchase of homes of new homes we wanted to have a set of assets. Uh, that created recurring income, that created that buoyancy for the company to navigate uh, those down cycles. What you're saying resonates with me because we've invested in land companies in the past 
And the one thing I've always had trouble with is the idea of capital recycling. So you have a great piece of land, you sell it to a developer, but then what? Can you redeploy that capital at a high rate of return? And then as your asset base depletes, then your asset base basically depletes as you monetize that land. So maybe talk a little bit about that desire to create a recurring revenue stream and how you've done that operation. Like, what does that actually look like in terms of your revenue lines um, going forward? And uh, I can't agree more with with uh, your critique of uh, traditional land companies. That's absolutely true. And, and that was the business model that we had previously. Uh, not only uh, were we focused on the sale of home sites, uh, but we were also focused on selling commercial land uh, very quickly. Uh, in the evolution of a, of a community or, or, or a subregion uh, in where we have our land holdings. So uh, very hollow, right? Uh, because you, you sell the land, you sell the home site, uh, then after you sell it, uh, you don't get any participation, uh, any economic participation uh, in that community or in that project. So that's one of the reasons why we focus on reoccurring income streams. And we, we've done that in a lot of different ways uh, as just a couple of examples, apartments. Uh, is an asset type, an asset class that tends to uh, fare uh, better during down cycles uh, than uh, residential uh, for sale uh, communities. Um, we sold a lot of land in the past uh, to apartment developers, uh, and those developers were able to take advantage of, of the overall lift or appreciation in the market that we were creating with investments we were making in the region. Uh, so we stopped doing that. Uh, we made a very conscious strategic decision not to sell uh, those uh, properties to apartment developers, and we instead decided to get in the business ourselves. Uh, I'm a firm believer in not knowing what we don't know. So uh, since we hadn't built an apartment complex before, we spent a lot of time selecting partners uh, that were in the business um, uh, that had a long history of apartment development and ownership. And we started developing apartments. Uh, again, we did that very consciously, number one, because we knew there was a, a market opportunity in our market. Uh, we always do market studies uh, to ground our perspective about where the opportunities are. But we, more importantly, we did it for recurring income streams. Uh, same thing with hotels. Uh, we've always owned a very high-end uh, portfolio of hotels uh, that are um, our own flags, the Watercolor Inn, for example, in the Gulf of Mexico, very high-end resort. Uh, we knew there was an opportunity uh, to uh, bring into the market more modest, family-oriented flagged hotel brands. Uh, so we made a very conscious decision instead of selling land to uh, hotel developers that we would do that ourselves and create those recurring income streams for the company. Uh, a third example is our club membership. Um, we have a very um, robust club membership program. Uh, that we've grown tremendously over the last couple of years. Um, those uh, club members uh, get to enjoy facilities like our beach club, our golf courses, uh, and it's a recurring income stream for us. Uh, there's a membership fee you pay up front, and then every month you pay dues. Uh, and as we've grown that club membership uh, portfolio, number of members, our recurring income streams have, have increased significantly also. So those are just three examples of, of ways that we've uh, we focus on increasing our recurring income streams. So it sounds like you, over the last few years, done a nice job transforming the revenue line item to be to have a little bit more stability in it. So when you think about redeploying capital going forward, what does that runway look like? Is there still a lot of room to continue to do that? And as as you're thinking about making internal investments, what kind of return on investment 
hurdles are you baking into your considerations? Yeah, let me answer the last question first. We don't have a, a, a fixed uh, one-size-fits-all uh, return on investment hurdle. Uh, every project, every decision we make to invest, to grow the company has its own set of facts and circumstances, not just specific to the project, but also the potential accretive value of the properties we own around it. Because usually when we make an investment in a project, we own all the land around it too. Um, so uh, don't have a set fixed uh, hurdle rate uh, for investing uh, in projects. In terms of the runway, uh, the, we're only beginning to scratch, scratch at the surface. Uh, right now, we're generating the majority of our revenue on just 2% of our land holdings, uh, which is an incredible statistic when you think about it. Uh, we've grown revenue and in net income and profitability um, over the last few years, and we're still only at 2% of our land holdings. We have a residential pipeline of approved residential units entitled by all government agencies and a master plan of 19,000 home sites. So uh, we're, we're really just beginning to scratch at the surface. And as this region continues to grow, which we think it will, the company's really uniquely positioned to take advantage of that growth in multiple ways. And now a quick word about our sponsor. Before we started using the Tegas platform in 2017, Coast Street rarely used expert networks to find high value sources to help us better understand the companies we follow. The competitors' offerings were expensive and limited. Tegas changed that dynamic through their innovative business model, allowing firms like ours with a more limited research budget to conduct expert calls at a fraction of the price of others. Tegas then records, transcribes, anonymizes, and posts a transcript to their platform for subscribers to learn from. Every new Tegas customer makes the platform stronger through deeper and richer transcripts, and I've personally seen the growth over the past four years. The Tegas network of experts and platform of previous calls has made the service an indispensable part of our investment process. In fact, we now use the word Tegas as a verb. If you haven't tried Tegas before, I highly recommend going to tegas.co for a free trial and to start Tegasing your research. And as you look out over the next call, three to five years, is that runway large enough for you to continue to focus just on you know, Northwest Florida? Or you know, do you have a vision for diversifying outside of Florida or outside of your region of Florida, either through M&A or new development? Yeah, the best way I can answer that question uh, is we have a long way to go in our region. We have a lot of opportunity in our region, specifically in our land holdings. Uh, so we want to focus on that. Uh, I can never discount that at some point in the future, we may, we may look outside of our region. We, we do get folks contacting us uh, on a regular basis, asking us if we want to uh, participate or be involved in, in, in their project outside of our region, because they've looked at the projects that we have developed and they have liked the way that we have approached our projects. So we will uh, never discount that possibility, uh, but we have such a long runway on our land holdings. Uh, we we want to be focused on that and not uh, create distractions in the short term. Interesting. That makes sense. And then on the commercial side specifically, how do you decide between selling that land to somebody else and then versus developing that land yourself? Because I just, you know, they're, they're big projects. They take a long time. Uh, so there's always some risk associated with it. So how do you, how are you juggling that now? And is it really, and, and you talk about partnerships, how, how does that play into it? That's a great question. And um, we are very picky sellers of commercial land, as I mentioned earlier. Um, what would it take for us to sell a commercial piece of property? It would probably take a unique set of, unique set of circumstances, for example. 
if there was a company that was a creator of high wage jobs that was going to create a lot of jobs in, in, in our region and their business model was one where they had to own the land, uh, we probably would look at that uh, very, very seriously. Um, because uh, obviously bringing high wage jobs to our region is something that we always support. Uh, if there's an opportunity that's short of that, that it's an opportunity for commercial, for any type of uh, real estate asset type, uh, that a third party wants to purchase the land, the likelihood is very high that uh, we're going to see that opportunity too. And it's probably on our radar screen already. Um, uh, if, it's a, if it's a type of asset that we just don't uh, feel comfortable with because the risk is too high or, or, or the level of complexity, uh, we would try to bring a partner in uh, to develop that with us, a partner that uh, is best in class, that has experience in owning and managing that asset. Um, so those are all just factors we would look at. Uh, in terms of making that decision of whether we sell a piece of commercial land or, or if we develop it ourselves by ourselves or with a partner. Continuing on that theme, can you discuss for people who are not necessarily familiar with how real estate works, the synergistic relationship between residential housing, commercial real estate, and other infrastructure sources such as airports? In other words, how do these feed off of one another to create more demand? I'd love to hear you um, kind of explain that for people. Absolutely. In nature, there's a concept called ecotone, which is when two different habitats overlap. Uh, ecologists and biologists will tell you that the ecotone uh, and the ecotones are the most interesting places in nature because you have flora and fauna uh, times two. Uh, what we're really trying to do at a high level is create a series of ecotones uh, through our region. We're trying to create uh, really the most interesting places uh, by overlapping residential, commercial and hospitality. So let me give you an example. Uh, we have in, in all of our residential communities, we typically have a village center, a commercial center uh, that's embedded within the community or adjacent to it. So when we make an investment uh, to develop home sites in, uh, in, for homes to be built. Essentially, that investment is creating customers uh, for commercial businesses and commercial tenants. So us, by just making that investment in the residential home sites, we're automatically creating customers uh, for commercial. So in the past, we would sell that commercial land to a developer very early in the process. And, and as we made the investments in the residential community, they were, they were able to create a lot of value uh, for themselves uh, with the customers that we were creating. When we change our business strategy uh, to focus on recurring income streams, and sell, instead of selling that commercial land, we made a decision to develop that commercial land ourselves and uh, take advantage of that accretive value that we were making just by the investment in the residential community. So once we do that and we develop uh, those village town centers, then we're creating amenities for the residential communities. So it helps to sell the residential communities even more. So it's like a virtual circle uh, that we try to create. Every investment we make will be accretive to one of our segments. And then it will go around uh, once again. Same thing with hospitality, where we have uh, a, a lodging, for example, uh, asset in one of our town centers. Lodging is, is, is the front porch, right? It's, it's a marketing arm of sort because it's a way for folks from outside of the region to come in and experience our region, experience our communities, our town centers. So we, we feel very strongly about that synergistic uh, component uh, that we're trying to create because real estate is a very specialized industry. Uh, you have developers that specialize in residential communities. You have developers that specialize in commercial, in lodging. 
Uh, we're a diversified real estate company. So uh, we have uh, essentially a, 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 a foot in, in all those uh, different areas. And by, by doing so, we're, we're trying to create this accretive value uh, to the company as a whole. You mentioned that you have your toe in bit of lots of different real estate asset classes. And that makes me think of, you know, like an, our investment firm, all, all the analysts at Coast Street are generalists. So what, what I joke, that means we know a little tiny bit about everything, but not an extraordinary amount about one thing. How do you, how do you, especially as a small company that doesn't have a huge employee base, how do you make sure that you have the expertise within various asset classes that you're not getting out over your skis and, you know, developing something for the first time, as you mentioned, how, how have we thought about that process? That's something we spend a lot of time on. I'm, I tend to be conservative by nature. Um, and I'm a firm believer in not knowing what I don't know. Uh, I think a lot of folks tend to get in trouble when they don't realize that. Uh, so we work very hard at, at keeping a very small, highly motivated, very knowledgeable core team of experts in the different areas that we're in. So in every space that we're in, whether it's hospitality, commercial, residential, we have a team that uh, is very knowledgeable in those segments. Uh, when there's a particular asset, like I mentioned before, that we haven't experienced ourselves before, that's when we tend to look for partners uh, that uh, can come in and give us that expertise. We spend a lot of time vetting our partners. Uh, we spend a lot of time getting to know them, understanding what their business model is, just to make sure that there's alignment up front. We ask a lot of questions. Uh, we visit their projects. We, we talk to their uh, other business partners uh, they may have had, uh, consumers in their projects. So it, it's an overall vetting process that we, we take very seriously and we spend a lot of time on. That sounds like a very similar process to how we evaluate public company management teams. What does a good partner look like for you? I assume that there's some operational things, but there's probably cultural things as well um, that are important. What how, as you as you are vetting new partners for real estate projects, what are the most important characteristics you're looking for? Trust is number one in, in my mind. Uh, trust is very important. Uh, these projects, these uh, business deals are are complex and have risk and they're challenging to execute. So if you don't have trust, uh, it, uh, they're they're even that much much more challenging to uh, to execute. So we look for partners that we can trust. And that's that vetting process where we get to know people. We, we spend a lot of time getting to know them, meeting them, uh, looking at their projects, uh, how they talk about their projects, how transparent they are, uh, how easy they are to understand. Um, so trust is very important to us in terms of a cultural fit. Another uh, aspect that we look for is what is their investment uh, horizon? So we have a very long-term view. Uh, these are assets that uh, our intention today is not to develop them, to sell them uh, quickly. Our intention is as we grow reoccurring revenue uh, streams, we want to own these assets uh, for the foreseeable future. So we want to make sure we have those discussions and vet that early with our partners because there are some business models, for example, in the apartment uh, development business where the minute you build the apartment, you sell it. So obviously, if that's what our partner uh, has an interest in or that's what they've done in the past, that's probably not going to be a good cultural fit for us right now. So th those are just a couple of examples. Uh, the vetting process that we, that we perform is, is, is very robust. I get personally involved in that. I spend a lot of time on that on the front end. I think it's a good segue to my next question. In your shareholder presentations, you mentioned the term owner-oriented. 
a lot of people say they're long-term focused, but what does that mean to you practically? And how does being owner-oriented impact the decisions you make regarding capital allocation? Absolutely. So what it means to us, and I know this sounds overly simplistic, but uh, it's something that uh, we stress uh, every day. Make decisions as if it was your own money. Uh, I know it sounds simplistic, but if you create that culture and you reinforce it, uh, that simplistic approach uh, tends to make a big difference in in the culture of the company. So every decision we make, um, whether it's uh, an apartment project, a residential community, the type, uh, the risk that we're willing to assume, uh, we always look at that and we always look at those decisions through the prism of what what uh, what would you do if it was your own money? And one of the effects of that is it creates a clarity and thought. What I mean by that, oftentimes, uh, the corporate world is uh, has, uh, it, this is my term, a lot of mumbo jumbo, right? There's a lot of uh, things that um, create a fog in decision making. Uh, by having this owner-oriented culture as if it was your money that you were investing, it creates a clarity uh, that is very helpful in making business decisions. Because we all know as individuals, if you're investing your own money, you typically would have some you know, a clarity of thought. Of, of making that investment and in, in what your goals were and the risk that you're willing to take. Regarding the concept of acting like it's your money and investing that way, you have a chart in your investor presentations that shows that more and more capital has been going to growth initiatives rather than to buying back shares. So I, I get the that you have a long runway, but how? what was the tipping point that said, the best use of our capital is no longer, you know, acting like an owner and buying back our own shares at a discount to intrinsic value, but instead investing organically. What what was the kind of tipping point there? Well, there wasn't really a tipping point. Uh, we view capital allocation as having three components: uh, investments and growth, dividends, and stock uh, repurchase. Uh, we still view it the same way. We really haven't haven't changed that perspective. There hasn't been a shift where we made a conscious decision. We're going to do this from this point forward. It's facts and circumstances. Uh, our board of directors, uh, we spend a lot of time with our board of directors, uh, constantly monitoring those toggles, uh, looking at the different opportunities that we have as a company to make uh, those broad capital allocation decisions. And it's circumstantial. It's facts. Uh, what what return do we think we can we can create, and what uh, return we can create for our shareholders? So if we uh, believe that at any point in time it's best to uh, buy shares back, we will do that. Um, so it wasn't really a shift; it was just facts and circumstances uh, that created that that graphic that you were referencing in in our annual report. You mentioned the board and you know coming up with a capital allocation strategy that that, that you've come up with. Uh, so famous value investor Bruce Berkowitz is a chairman of the board of this company and has been the chairman since 2011. What have you learned from Bruce about investing in capital allocation that you think has helped you in your role? Uh, a lot of things. Uh, it's, uh, it's been a privilege to get to know Bruce, uh, extremely smart individual, a smart investor. Um, I think one of the main things I've learned from him is to remove clutter in the thought process. Um, there's oftentimes a lot of clutter, uh, a lot of congestion in making business decision, in making investments decisions. Uh, 
um, to, so to remove that clutter, remove that static and, and look at uh, opportunities and look at investments decisions in the clearest way that you can, uh, breaking it down in its simplest components is, is probably one of the biggest things I've learned from Bruce. I think that's a good parallel to, to how you know a lot of investors invest. I think a lot of, especially institutional allocators really like to see a single decision maker as opposed to committees and consensus. So it, let's just talk about it. If you're sitting in the room, boardroom, or even in your management team room, and you're thinking about a project, how does a decision kind of like bubble up from the from kind of the ground, operating people to to actually getting made? Is is are you the final contact point of contact? Are you is the board the final contact? Is there a consensus developed between in between that? How how does decision making actually work given given what you talk about clutter? It's probably a little bit of all that. Uh, and that was another major change we made uh, when the management transition occurred. Uh, the decision-making process of the company previously was very cumbersome, uh, very complex, uh, very cumbersome. Um, and in business, as, as you know, uh, oftentimes when you spend too much time making decisions, the opportunity that you thought you had passes. So we made a very conscious decision uh, to uh, improve the efficiency of our decision-making process while still having all, those, all the safeguards uh, that you need to have from a governance perspective. So the uh, first way I can answer your question, um, we believe that good ideas can come from anywhere in the company. Good ideas don't just come from the top down. Good ideas don't just come from me. In fact, I get uh, thrilled when there's a good idea that comes from uh, one, any one of our employees. Uh, so we vet the ideas, we discuss them, uh, we, we try to risk prove them. Uh, if the case uh, so calls, we'll, we may do a third party market analysis. Um, in terms of the dialogue with the board, uh, that's something that uh, whether it's a decision, an investment decision that requires their approval or not, I'm an over communicator by nature. Uh, I hate uh, for anybody to have surprises about anything. Um, so just about any major project that we're contemplating, uh, I will have some level of communication with the board um, and give them an opportunity to ask questions uh, about the project and the investment. So uh, we have the, the, uh, the structure to make decisions and have the safeguards, but we have simplified, again, going back to that theme of eliminating clutter in, in static uh, so we can make decisions in, in the most efficient way possible. Again, like if it was your money, you would make. Uh, that goes back to that cultural theme about make decisions as if uh, it was your money, uh, creating that owner uh, mentality. Because if you're a sole proprietor and you're making a decision in your business, uh, you're not going to spend six months th six months through a ceremonial process of getting approvals. Because when those six months co uh, come and go, the opportunity probably uh, has uh, has also. And you talk about becoming more efficient. This company has cut a ton of costs since you became CEO uh, in 2015. What did you see as the opportunity there? And did that require, you know, changing out people? I'm, I'm interested, like, did you come in and say, we need different people on this bus? And then lastly, you know, sometimes people worry about, you know, having the right people on board as you scale, right? Let's say that you... You know, you're you're not, you're not only monetizing two percent of your land; you're monetizing ten percent of your land. Does that require more people, or do you feel like you have a pretty pretty good core right now? Yeah. So going back to your first question, uh, we we did a little bit of both. Uh, we we had some people that we thought uh, were ideal for the execution of the, the business strategy. 
we had some folks that we felt we needed uh, different people to come in. So we made those decisions, always difficult decisions to make, uh, but there were important decisions to make. And there were decisions that you, you need to make fast You because those kind of decisions don't, don't age well. Uh, so we did make changes to our team, to our staff, uh, consistent with the business strategy changes that we knew we were going to make. Uh, so as we were going to focus more on recurring income streams, as we we're going to focus more on uh, a, a wider diversity of uh, asset types, not just going after the 1%, all those things meant very specific things in terms of staffing, in terms of the skill set that we needed, the kind of people that we needed. Um, so yes, we, we did go through that process. Uh, one of the, the second part of your question is one of the misunderstood parts of our company. Uh, we believe that we have created a team, I call it an assembly line. Um, we've created a team and a process that is very efficient and allows us to scale up uh, significantly without having a major increase in staffing and in corporate overhead. And, and proof of that is if you've seen the revenue growth that we've had over the last couple of years, we've maintained our corporate overhead uh, pretty much flat. And as a percentage of our revenue, it actually has gone down. Uh, there's, that's been on purpose. That wasn't an accident. Um, it's not only bringing the right people to the team, but it's making sure that they're, they're playing the right roles and we're creating efficiency in how we execute our project. So uh, that assembly line that we've created, uh, we, we believe, um, has a lot of potential to scale up uh, with minimal increases in corporate overhead. Got it. And this company has been the subject of a fair amount of criticism over a number of years. And I'd love to get into that a little bit. So the one thing I remember was the famous short piece from David Einhorn that, that was put out on the company in 2010, you know, the claiming that nobody would ever want to move this part of Florida. And that even if you controlled the best land, it didn't matter because no one would ever come. Clearly that, that has been, you know, proven to be somewhat inaccurate, but was there anything, you know, in, in the short piece from Einhorn or, or that, that you think he got right? I mean, that, ha that has stood the test of time? Maybe the, some of the cost stuff, is that, is that what you would point to where you would say that there was some merit to that? Yeah, and I think uh, any one of those pieces, uh, there's always components in them that, that age better than others. Uh, and I think probably the same can be said of, of that particular piece. And, and I think cost is probably one, one, of, the, one of the areas that was probably... Uh, at least in the realm of, of yeah, it, it made uh, made some sense at the time. Um, one of the things for for me in particular, I don't really spend a lot of time dwelling on that. Um, we're uh, we're laser focused on creating shareholder shareholder value today and tomorrow. Um, so we're we're looking forward. Um, but uh, are there some pieces that age well? Probably, like you know, like in all of those pieces. And in 2018, Carisdale came out with a short piece whose main argument was that the, the company had sold its best land and was left with basically undevelopable swampland. How much of your remaining acreage is actually developable? Because, you know, I, we've invested in land companies before and, you know, it's probably not 100% and it's probably not 2%. It's probably somewhere in there. But maybe give us a sense of how you're looking at the developability, if that's a word, uh, of, um, of, the, of the rest of your land holdings. Sure. When first of all, when you're talking about 170,000 acres, that's a lot of land, and and you're going to see a lot of diversity uh, within that land. So every project has its own set of facts and circumstances as it relates to how much is developable and how much is not. And uh, clearly, uh, when that piece came out, we've developed a lot of land since then. Uh, 
So uh, clearly factual. That was an opinion that was expressed, but uh, we don't believe it was factual. The best way to think about it is this way, Ben. Um, we obtain approval of the Bay Walton sector plan from the state of Florida, uh, from Bay County, from Walton County. And Florida has a very strict growth management uh, set of laws and processes. That sector plan was approved with uh, entitlement or right, a right to build 170,000 homes and over 20 million square feet of non-commercial. Under Florida's growth management laws, I can guarantee you that the state and local governments would not have approved that sector plan if they felt our land was not developable. You mentioned that sector plan, and I think it's a really interesting component of your business. Um, if, I'm, if I'm right, it's a 50-year plan, which is a, over a long period of time. What is the benefit from the company's perspective and an internal planning perspective of having your, part, your municipal partners and county partners saying you have a 50-year runway? What, is that, what does that allow the company to do that maybe other companies wouldn't have the, you know, the bandwidth or the, maybe the long-term vision to do? Three, three different things. Uh, number one, it allowed us to get the entitlements. The, the as of right uh, development rights, the 170,000 homes and 20 million square feet of non-residential. We could not have done that without that 50 year vision sector plan. Second thing, it allows us to land plan very efficiently to make every inch count. Uh, that's something else that we talk uh, in the office uh, often, we, we need to make every inch count. So when you can plan a little bit more holistically, uh, you, you, you can create some efficiencies in how you uh, create value from the land as opposed to doing it in a very fragmented uh, fashion. The third part um, uh, is a little bit more what you mentioned. It allows us to plan for infrastructure more efficiently. So it allows us to have those conversations with the State Department of Transportation, with the utility providers, uh, with the local communities that um, are in the utility business, water and sewer. Uh, when we have a framework for a 50-year vision at that scale, then it's a lot easier to plan very efficiently for utilities and infrastructure, not just be reactive and always be in arrears in your infrastructure catching up with the development needs. And from your perspective, are there made any major attractions or infrastructure projects that are missing in the area, either from a tourism perspective or from a, a homeowner perspective? Is there something that you know would be really helpful uh, if it was developed or something that, that's in the planning that's over the next three to five years you expect to see built from, a, from an infrastructure perspective? Uh, in terms of an attraction, no, there's nothing major uh, that I can think of. We, we have a, this is a resort destination. Um, so we, we have a lot of different uh, attractions that are here. We obviously always want more of them. And, and uh, in, in our pipeline and in, in, in our planning of projects, uh, we have those things in mind to continue to attract uh, more people. We need more attractions. Uh, but is there one major one that uh, I believe we're, we're really missing here? No, I, I can't think of one major one. So given your land holdings in the area, clearly this company has a lot of clout in the region. You've talked a little bit about how you approached, you know, you know, kind of long-term planning with, with your partners, but what is a general approach to developing a win-win relationship with the mayors and building departments in, in your uh, main counties? And that's a great question. And that goes back to uh, one of the three competitive advantages I mentioned that we had, the relationships that we have in the community. Uh, there is no secret to creating relationships. You do it with trust and with humility. Uh, 
Um, so we spent a lot of time uh, talking directly one-on-one in building and in cultivating and growing those relationships with elected officials, community leaders. And we try to do it in a very genuine and personal way. We don't use lobbyists uh, to uh, represent us at zoning hearings, for example. Uh, we do that ourselves. Uh, we think it's really important in our market for those elected officials to see us uh, at the podium, to see us uh, when we have uh, a permit uh, that we need. So we spend a lot of time on that. Uh, we're also very accessible. Uh, I give my cell phone to just about anybody uh, in the community. If, if they have an issue, a concern, a question, if they heard something, um, uh, what I always encourage them to do is uh, just call me and I'm always going to tell you the truth. Uh, the other aspect of it is what we, we, we talk with uh, our partners and community leaders, uh, we remind them that because of the nature of our assets, what we're in the business of doing, uh, as the community goes, so do we. Uh, it's very difficult to see a scenario where the company's doing really well, but our communities are not, and vice versa. It's very difficult to see a scenario where the community is doing well, if the school district is doing well, um, if people feel safe. Uh, if the infrastructure is keeping up uh, with the population growth, then those are all things that are going to bode well for the company too. So uh, we're, we're joined at the hip with the community. And I use the term often with, in the community, rising tide lifts all boats. And we really believe that when good things happen in our community, good things happen for us and vice versa. So uh, just good old fashioned relationship building uh, where we create a trust level. Uh, with our communities is, is really the, the, the best way that we can maintain um, uh, our ability to execute our projects. It seems like there's a lot of alignment there, but just going the other way a little bit, when any organization has as much power as you do, you know, some people might be a little concerned about abuse of power. How do you, how do you avoid being seen as, in whatever capacity that would, would show up abusing your power? Uh, a lot of that is uh, what I said before. Uh, we, we, we try to uh, have a sense of humility in what we do. Uh, we don't always have all the right answers, and we're not always going to be making decisions uh, that um, uh, are going to create any kind of issue in the community, because if we do, we're creating issues for ourselves. Um, so uh, not sure there's one silver bullet way to avoid that, uh, except to maintain those relationships at a very personal level. And when we do things that uh, the community doesn't like, uh, when we do things that uh, are different than what they expected, that's where being open and accessible comes into play. Because I will get those phone calls pretty quickly uh, from community leaders and elected officials. So that's a, a bit of a counterbalance. Uh, to make sure that uh, we're not doing things that are contrary or detrimental to the community. On the theme of community protection, um, you know, especially given the immense destruction we've seen with Hurricane Ida, my guess is some investors would be worried about the risk of hurricanes and that threat in the area. Can you talk about the company's history with hurricanes and how you as a company build resiliency against that? Absolutely. So in 2018, our region experienced a Category 5 hurricane, Hurricane Michael. Uh, it was devastating. It was a, a really big storm uh, that uh, developed fairly quickly. Um, one of the things that we learned from that storm is that the areas of town that were built to modern building codes tended to have done much better than the part of town that uh, were built uh, many years ago under substandard building codes. And uh, that's something that you, you could have just driven around the community 
uh, not long after the hurricane. And you could have pretty quickly uh, uh, picked out the parts of town that were newer, that were built to building codes, uh, impact resistant windows, hurricane clips in the roofs, for example. Um, for us, everything that we're doing is we're building new infrastructure. We're building new projects, new communities. They're all going to be built to the most modern building codes. Uh, so there's an inherent resiliency that's embedded in those building codes. And those building codes change often, by the way. Uh, they change after Hurricane Michael. They were made even stronger. So by the fact that we're developing uh, new infrastructure, new projects, new communities to the most modern building codes, and in many in many many cases, we even exceed the codes uh, that are adopted. The other aspect of it, because uh, I know uh, climate change, rising sea levels is kind of related uh, to that in terms of some of the questions that uh, investors may have. One of, the, one of the things about this part of Florida that's not well known is the topography that we have. Uh, the natural dune system uh, that existed in this part of Florida and our land holdings, that has been preserved. So for example, the watercolor in which is our high-end resort right in the Gulf of Mexico, is at an elevation of over 20 feet. That's just uh, one example. Latitude, which is our new uh, active adult retirement community um, on the intercoastal waterway, has a natural ele elevation of 30 to 40 feet. Um, so topography is something that's unique for this part of Florida, uh, which, which uh, nature is, is, is really the best attenuator of natural disaster. Those natural dunes tend to do their job. Uh, when surge comes in and a storm uh, comes in. Uh, a third component of it is the way that we plan. Again, going back to our sector plan and the ability for us to plan efficiently, uh, we, we do that uh, with flooding in mind, um, with surge in mind. So the way that we incorporate open space into our residential communities, the way that we incorporate water management with uh, uh, ponds for, uh, to retain water, detain water. Those are all things that we do at a large scale, which create a level of efficiency that is very difficult to obtain when you're developing 50 acres at a time. And wouldn't there be an advantage in, to doing this from scratch as opposed to a city like Miami, which is already built and has to do all kinds of really expensive things to protect citizens from flooding? But isn't, do you guys have an advantage of being able to you know, have a 50-year plan and you can build the infrastructure with this in mind as opposed to maybe what the codes were in 1950? That's absolutely correct. And that is one of the advantages that we have. Uh, so, for example, when you tend to look at a, a flooding situation in any community, whether it's uh, because of a hurricane or just a lot of rain, what you tend to find are the parts of town that are the oldest, that were built uh, the most years ago. Uh, that they were done without the adequate level of water management infrastructure or the parts of town that flood. Uh, the newer parts of town that were built with the adequate uh, drainage infrastructure tend not to flood that much. Um, so that, that's um, kind of the perspective we have by having the ability to, to plan at the level and scale that we do. Uh, it gives us a, an advantage uh, when it comes to attenuating risk of flooding, for example. My guess is the way you design communities and, and housing has, has changed over your, your career in real estate. So I'd love to hear, you know, in what ways you can now design communities in a smarter way, either from a cost perspective to make it cheaper to develop it, from a livability perspective, or even a sustainability perspective that maybe wasn't possible 20 years ago. You know, the biggest change that we've, we've seen, we've always been a little bit on the cutting edge 
uh, on innovative land planning practices. Uh, we've always have felt just because of the scale uh, that we plan, we've always felt we've been on the cutting edge of that. Uh, the biggest change that we've seen is in the consumer expectation of that. Uh, many years ago, a lot of the things that we were planning into our communities, uh, functionally integrating open space, for example, and the advantages of that, uh, carefully planning the, the water retainage areas uh, and connecting uh, everything, uh, those are things that uh, were unique. And at the consumer level, there were not things that uh, maybe were in, in, in their narrative as much. Uh, over the last 10, 15 years, we've seen consumers become a lot smarter about sustainability, uh, about good planning practices. So the, the, the consumer expectation uh, of those type of uh, planning uh, characteristics in our community, uh, they really have caught up, uh, which, uh, which we, we, we think it's a great development. We think it's a great thing because uh, those are things that we have been focused on for, for a long time. And when I think about construction in general, I think of it, and this is, I, I come from a real estate background, so I can say this, you know, I think, you know, I just, it, it feels like it's like an old industry that, that, you know, the codes get updated, but I feel like things are done the same way in a lot of places they've always been done. So how, how do you guys future proof a home or community in, in a way, maybe in an innovative way? And are there any legacy practices within, you know, kind of building construction and, 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 and planning that you think, you know, wouldn't make sense if we were starting from scratch as, as it kind of taking from an industry approach about how we build houses and how we build commercial real estate? Yeah, and it's a, it's a complicated question because, as you know, there's a lot that goes into that, not just on the trades and labor component, but also the supply chain component. Because um, everything is, is related to everything else. So um, it is the construction industry is an industry that does not change uh, very quickly. Uh, however, we, we have seen changes uh, over the years. We have seen some innovation that maybe don't get uh, the publicity or the headlines uh, that uh, some, some other areas get. And a lot of that is being driven by consumer demand and consumer expectation. Uh, going back to uh, the previous perspective I gave you. Uh, consumers today ask a lot more questions about the R rating, uh, insulation rating of a home. And it's uh, part of it is maybe they have a perspective about sustainability and in, 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 in kind of a global perspective. But a lot of it has to do with their wallet. A lot of it has to do with what does that mean? What does that R rating mean to the utility bills I'm going to pay? Uh, so we have seen uh, some incremental improvements and in innovation. Uh, are they as, as significant as in some other industries? Uh, no, probably not. I think you're, you're right about that. But we have seen some in incremental improvements. They're just not obvious um, and they're not headliners that people uh, would notice. Um, in terms of legacy practices, yeah, there's probably a lot of different things, a lot of different ways that, for example, insulation was done uh, are, are things that we've learned. Uh, are not uh, good ways uh, to do things. Even drainage. Um, drainage was looked upon in the past as being very structural. Um, everything's very structural in uh, integrating drainage ponds into the natural environment uh, for better uh, and more natural filtration were things that were not uh, maybe uh, designed uh, 10, 15 years ago as much. We're seeing a lot more of that as we move forward. I want to pivot a little bit and talk more about you know, this company as an investment. So as we've talked about, you're developing a lot of different revenue streams, 
you know, this diversification is great, but it also makes valuing the company a little more messy. So for an investor who's looking at the company for the first time, how do you suggest someone try to value what you're building? Is that kind of a sum of the parts? Like what, you know, it, it's a it's a little messy in, in, in terms of valuation. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on how someone should approach it at, at first glance. Yeah, I think uh, it's hard to argue that uh, valuing a diversified real estate company is a little bit more challenging than a company that specializes in one asset type. Uh, obviously, uh, the latter is a lot easier to value. You know, the best way I can answer that question is uh, I would uh, encourage in investors or prospective investors to, to do two things. One, keep looking at our Qs and Ks very carefully. Uh, every time we have a, a, a new quarterly report, uh, we add new information to it. Why do we add more information to it? Because as our business is growing, we want to share more and more facts about our business. Um, we add more tables. Uh, we provide metrics uh, on returns for certain assets. So I would look at the cues very carefully if I was an investor, particularly looking at the new information that we add. We're doing that for a reason. We want to make sure that uh, everybody can see under the hood a little bit better and understand how all the parts are, are working together. Uh, our cues are not static. We are constantly adding new information to it um, as our company grows. The second thing is something I encourage everybody to do. Visit our region. Uh, anybody that is bullish in St. Joe has to be bullish in the growth of the region. Um, and there are certain things you can do to value a company uh, remotely. But for the type of assets that we have, I really believe you have to come here and, and take a look for yourself, not just at the projects the company's developing, but talk to the uh, school board superintendents and ask them what's happening in, in enrollment in their schools. Talk to the Chamber of Commerce, ask them what's happening with new business formation. Talk to the realtors and ask them what's happening on the supply demand side. You really have to see what's happening in the region. Uh, don't even come visit with us if you don't want, yeah, but come and visit the region. Every single person that has come to our region, uh, whether they're an existing investor or a prospective investor that has never been here before, they had a preconceived notion of what this region was like. And every single one without exception has always come back to me and said, I had no idea this is what is happening here. So uh, I think valuing this company would be incomplete, uh, quite honestly, without uh, folks coming here and, and taking a look at to see what's happening and, and understanding what is happening in the region and what the position that the company has in terms of the land ownership, the operational muscle and the relationships, what that may mean for future value creation and growth of the company. It's really great to hear that you have, you know, consciously decided to be more transparent as your business grows. Um, but there are also a lot of moving pieces for an investor or anybody trying to measure your success. What I'm interested in, what are the key performance indicators or metrics that you guys pay most attention to that say, yes, we are making progress, um, you know, maybe outside of traditional revenue and, and maybe in, you know, EBITDA or something like that? It's a great question. Um, one of the, one of the, key measures that we look at is, and, and it's a term of art, a lot of people define it differently, but free cash flow. Uh, what, is, what does it look like the cash that the company's generating? Uh, and we introduce a new metric 
a new table for that uh, in our last earnings uh, release, our last Q. Uh, that's important because when you go back and, and think about capital allocation and you think about uh, investments for growth or dividends or buying shares back, cash is really important. And for a company like St. Joe that owns real estate assets where you have to incorporate depreciation and other uh, accounting aspects uh, to what our net income may be, uh, I would uh, look at what our cash generation looks like as we grow the company very carefully. I think a lot of the potential investors would look at your success and the run the stock has had since, you know, to, you know, especially over the last year or so and say, I've missed it. For someone like myself who is kind of psychologically pained when I buy a stock on the way up, how would you frame the argument for those, you know, for why people haven't missed it and that, you know, this is just the first leg of, of, of a number of, 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 of you know, legs that this, this company is going to be able to, to, to or first, for, let's call it this way, the first step in a, in a longer journey. I think the, the beginning, and that's a great question, by the way, and I think the, the beginning uh, part of that answer is to take a look at what percentage of our revenue we're generating from our asset base. And right now, like I said before, the, the majority of our revenue is being generated from 2% of our land holdings. Um, so as the region grows, uh, and we uh, unlock more and more of our land holdings, uh, we really believe we're just starting to scratch at the surface uh, of what the potential of this company uh, is. And I've used this term before uh, with shareholders and at annual meetings. I, I really believe we're, we're creating a framework for multi-generational growth uh, that this company can deliver. Um, so I, I, would, I would look at that percentage, 2%, and I believe the number is 89% of our revenue is coming from 2% uh, of our land holdings. Um, I think that's a way to quantify uh, the fact that uh, there's a potential long runway uh, for this company in this region. Because that's one of the unique things about this company, particularly in Florida, um, the, the concentration of ownership that this company has in a, in a part of Florida that's, that's growing and it's going to grow even more is pretty unique. Uh, when other parts of Florida have grown at different times in, in history, whether it's Southeast Florida or Central Florida or Southwest Florida, uh, there really wasn't a concentration of ownership. Uh, the, the ownership pattern was very fragmented. Um, so the concentration that we have as this region uh, grows is, is really unique. And that's one of the reasons why we think the company is uniquely positioned uh, for multi-generational growth. The one issue with free cash flow as a metric for a company like this is that land sales can be kind of lumpy. And so if you do sell some land, you know, one period's free cash flow can be elevated versus versus another. Is there does book value per share mean anything to you? I mean, I think of like land companies and real estate companies as book value being something that 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 is meaningful. Is that is that a metric that you guys look at at all or is it not sure. really? Important? No, I think I think it's uh, and when I suggested free cash flow, I didn't mean to suggest that's the only metric. Um, there's other metrics I think that uh, collectively, when looked at together, I think we'll we'll start uh, presenting a better picture of of how the company's doing, and that's certainly one of the ones that we look at, and I think that's one that investors should look at too. And as we think about recent success, the company has had, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, being an employee of St. Joe over the last decade has required a fair amount of patience. How have you been able to instill and foster a long-term mentality within the organization that has allowed for people to be patient enough to wait for the, you know, for the turn that you guys have seen recently? 
Well, I think it, it begins and ends with, with the support of our shareholders. Um, our shareholders uh, have to have a belief, number one, in the region, that the region is going to grow. Um, and number two, that uh, the company has this potential over the long haul uh, to create uh, a tremendous amount of uh, shareholder value. So uh, the patience, uh, I think, uh, component is very important and it begins and ends with, with our shareholders. Uh, from a management perspective, um, the, the way that we um, create the assembly line that, that I mentioned before, the way that we do large-scale planning, uh, the way that we look at opportunities in our communities, looking at it uh, for, the, for the long term, those are all things that uh, come more naturally uh, to us. So that, that aspect of it hasn't been as challenging to maintain. Uh, it's, it's really our shareholders having the, the patience uh, to understand the potential that the company has that's been uh, the most important factor. And one of, the, one of my favorite things you said during this interview was, is um, that you, 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 you're well aware that you don't have all the answers. Is there anything that you, some critical aspect of this business or this company that you've had to rethink or completely pivot on over your tenure there? Something that, you know, something that you've had to completely change your thinking on? You know, as, as business people, um, I think there's always on a day-to-day basis, we, we all ask ourselves, could we have done that better? Could we have made a better decision? And there's probably a lot of those things. Um, um, and and I, I, I feel very strongly that we tend to learn more from mistakes sometimes than we do from, from successes. So yeah, there's been a lot of uh, daily day-to-day things that uh, we, we think about that I think about that we could have done better from a business strategy perspective, um, kind of at a high level in terms of the, the trajectory of the company, we still feel pretty good uh, about the decisions we made on the pivot. Um, you know, again, going back to re- focusing on recurring income streams and diversifying revenue streams, uh, the things that we couldn't control, like Hurricane Michael, like the pandemic, uh, that business strategy has fit in very well with uh, what those unfortunate events have created for us and the opportunities. So from a major directional perspective, uh, we feel pretty good about the direction that we're on. Well, it certainly sounds like the ability to, to weather Hurricane Michael and the pandemic is suggests that you've built some resiliency into the company. So maybe we'll close with our the question we ask everybody. And I think we've talked about a number of things that are maybe misunderstood or underappreciated about this company. But, you know, just for the closing shot, like, what do you think people most underappreciate or totally missing about this company and your business? A couple things. And I think number one, uh, going back to one of the questions you asked before, uh, that people are just not moving here and it's not an area that's appealing to move. That's just factually not correct. Um, so, for example, Walton County um, from 2010 to 2020 uh, was one of the fastest growing counties in the state of Florida. I believe it was number five uh, out of 67 Florida counties. It was one of the fastest growing counties in the country. I believe it was in the 20s. Uh, all counties in the country. Um, so people are moving here uh, and uh, people are discovering this area and they're finding it attractive. Uh, the second uh, thing I would mention is uh, to visit. I think it's really important, anybody that's taking a serious look at St. Joe, uh, to take the time to come and visit us. Uh, meet with us if you want, 
we'll talk about our projects. We talk, we'll talk about uh, what we're working on, how, how we see uh, the trajectory of the company. But look at the area. Look at what's happening in the real estate market here. Look at what's happening in the schools. Look at what's happening uh, with business creation. Because um, those are all things that clearly some of those things can be done remotely, but you really have to see it uh, to, to really connect dots and understand. So I would strongly encourage anybody that's uh, taking a, a serious look at the company to visit us. And do you avoid being there in June and July? Are those the hot months or like, <laughs> is this a springtime thing? When, when's the best time to come visit? Uh, yeah, our peak season is in, in the summertime. So our, all of our hotels run 100% occupancy. Uh, during that time. Um, the, I invite people to come anytime they can. Uh, anytime they can, uh, we'll, we'll be able to help them find accommodations. Uh, but being here makes, makes a big difference. Uh, just seeing what's happening makes a big difference. Well, George, uh, this has been a great conversation. Uh, really appreciated your insight and, and you know, your comments on humility and you know, being willing to admit you were wrong. I think those are really good attributes for a CEO. And it sounds like a lot of the things that you're bringing and have brought since being becoming CEO have been really helpful for the company. So it was great to hear the story. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, Ben. Appreciate the opportunity. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at co-streetcapital.com with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibagger.